Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Good evening, and welcome to the annual trick-or-treat after Halloween, Samhain, All Hallows' Eve, and let us not forget Dia de los Muertos, or Day of the Dead episode of The Shaman's Brew. You never know if this show is going to be a trick or a treat, because it is the nature of the holiday. I am relieved to say that this year it will be quite a treat, as I welcome the one and only Master of the Macabre, Vincent Price, who is going to share with you a contemporary story of magic and witchcraft throughout history to modern times. I found this audio dissertation buried deep amongst my many books on the topic of magic and witchcraft, and after blowing off the dust, I decided to share it with my listeners. What's that? <laughs> Now, surely you didn't think I was going to be interviewing Vincent with my transdimensional transceiver from the other side of the veil, did you? Did you hear that, Vincent? Someone in the audience thought you would be on the show live from the other side. Now, that would give a whole new meaning to the radio term, dead air. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid my transdimensional transceiver is not that far advanced to conduct an interview with the dead. Yet. Okay, okay, okay. Enough playing around. I am going to turn this show over to the incredible Mr. Vincent Price. Stay tuned for future shows on this topic as I will be presenting shows for the next few weeks on magic, sorcery, and witchcraft from both a scientific and a shamanic perspective in hopes of illuminating the truth behind many of these often misunderstood subjects. And now, I present one of my all-time favorite people, the legendary Mr. Vincent Price. According to the scholars, it means 
manipulating and controlling nature by supernatural means, communicating with unseen forces and putting them to work. No, I don't mean the unseen forces of electricity or gravity or magnetism, nor even such things as invisible light, which scientists call infrared and ultraviolet, nor radioactivity, no. I mean the supernatural or preternatural, unseen forces that have been known to man since the beginning of time, but cannot be captured and catalogued by physical science for the simple reason that they are not physical. They are far greater. They belong to the mind, to the spirit. They are the ultimate reality. They are free of the bonds of time and space. They are everywhere, always. Yes, magic is everywhere. There is no doubt about it. But what and where and how and when and who and what are witches and magicians? <laughs> These are questions not so easy to answer simply. Do you believe in witches and magic? <laughs> I hope so, because it can be unwise not to. Do you believe in life after death? Do you believe in luck? Do you believe in premonitions, being somewhere where you know you've been before, although you know you've never been there? Do you believe in dreams and the unseen forces of astrology? Do you believe that there is order and genius in the hundred thousand million galaxies similar to our own? Do you believe that the life of our bodies is the beginning and end? Or do you believe in reincarnation, perhaps in heaven and in hell? Do you believe in prophecy and poltergeists? Eh? <laughs> do you? <laughs> yes, you see, the universe is populated with spirits, unseen forces which permeate all things, both tangible and intangible, both visible and invisible, things we see and things we don't, things we know or think we know and things we know nothing of, the natural and the supernatural. So come with me into the magic world of the supernatural the world of witches and demons, warlocks and sorcerers, oracles and seers, alchemists and wizards, into the unfathomable world of the unknown, the world of the spirits and unseen forces that guide our destiny. They are everywhere. Let's turn down the lights and throw another log on the fire. I'd like to tell you a little story. It concerns a certain Mr. Ronald Seth, a scholarly English gentleman who in Anno Domini in 1967 wrote an excellent book entitled Witches and Their Craft. When he was a little boy of seven or eight years old, Master Seth was taken by his stepmother to visit a friend who had recently birthed a baby. They lived in the Fens, a region of England, a remote and marshy moor, which has been associated with witchcraft since the most ancient times. As they were admiring the pretty baby in its cradle, there was suddenly a loud knocking at the door. The lady of the house went to answer it. Master Seth heard the gruff voice of a beggar demanding a few pennies. The lady said she had nothing to spare and slammed the door in the man's face. 
Master Seth's stepmother looked out of the window as the man went down the garden path and remarked that he looked more like a gypsy. As she was saying this, the young mother stooped over the cradle and screamed. The little baby's head and face were covered with a seething mass of tiny insects, like lice. The mother snatched up her purse and, trembling, gave little Master Seth two pennies, telling him to run after the stranger and give them to him. He found the vagabond in the lane, squatting by the hedge near the garden gate, waiting. He grinned and held out his hand. Changed her mind, did she? I thought she would. He pocketed the pennies. Tell her I'll take it off. The little boy ran back to the house without a word. His mother had the baby in her arms. It cooed happily. The lice had vanished, every single one. This little story doesn't really prove anything. How could it? But it's interesting, don't you think? Who knows? Where hast thou been, sister? Killing swine. Sister, where thou? A sailor's wife had chestnuts in her lap and munched and munched and munched. Give me, quoth I. Aroint thee, witch, the rump-faced runyon cries. Her husband's to Aleppo gone, master of the tiger, but in a servile thither sail, and like a rat without a tail, I'll do, I'll do, <laughs> and I'll do. And the very ports they blow, all the quarters that they know in the shipment's cart. I will drain him dry as hay. Sleep shall neither night nor day hang upon his penthouse lid. He shall live, a man forbid. Weary nights nine times nine shall dwindle peak and pine. Though his bark cannot be lost, yet it shall be tempest-tossed. Look what I have. Show me. Oh, show me. Here I have a pilot's thumb, wrecked as homeward he did come. The weird sisters, hand in hand, posters of the sea land, thus to go about, about, thrice to thine and thrice to mine, and thrice again to make up nine. Peace, the charms wound up. But really, you know, you shouldn't be afraid of witches. They are not always evil. In fact, sometimes they can be very good friends to have on your side. The English witches today will tell you that it was they who raised the tempest that drove off the Spanish Armada. It just happened to come by chance, you say, in the very nick of time, driving the Don's warships out into the Atlantic, then back to be smashed in pieces on the vicious rocks of the remote and rugged coasts of Ireland and northern Scotland. Not so long ago, the witches will tell you, they were the force that saved England once again. In 1940, they stayed the hand of Hitler, forcing him to hesitate, immobilized, instead of sending the invincible Nazi armies across the narrow waters to smash the English. Or so Dr. Gerald Gardner, a famous anthropologist, says, Britain's defences were virtually non-existent. Only a miracle could save England now. 
or magic. Dr. Gardner tells how the witches gathered in a certain secret place in the new forest. Oh, <laughs> did I forget to mention that Dr. Gardner is himself a witch. Well, he is, you know. Anyway, the great magic circle was drawn at dead of night and various secret rituals were performed. The greatest possible concentration of unseen forces were gathered. The witches raised the great cone of power and slowly directed it toward their enemy. Then they commanded Hitler with these words, You cannot cross the sea. You cannot come. You cannot come. And he did not come. But why? Dr. Gardner tells us that the witches summoned the mightiest preternatural forces of all. Exactly how it was done is a closely guarded secret of the craft, which the witches call the old religion. But it is common knowledge, which even scientists know, that the great cone of power is an auric emanation, an invisible yet demonstrable cone of force. To gather these most powerful of all unseen forces, the witches used their own life force, and many of them died there in the new forest when this was done. But don't think Hitler didn't believe in magic. He did indeed. In fact, he was deeply involved in the black arts himself. There was a powerful group of black magicians in Germany called the Thule Society. One of the founder members of this satanic sect also helped to found the Nazi party. Another close associate of the Fuhrer was General Karl Haushofer, a university professor, an army general, a psychic, and a magician. He was also one of the founders of the Nazi party who believed it was their destiny to conquer the world and that they were to do it with the help of the supernatural powers of darkness with whom they had made contact. Having made this pact, they could only invoke the powers of evil by a magician working through a medium. The magician was Haushofer. The medium they chose was the insane but undeniably psychic Austrian Corporal Adolf Hitler. People who knew Hitler recognized this quality in him instantly. Hermann Rauschning, an anti-Nazi politician and writer who fled to America in 1940, wrote that Hitler was possessed by outside forces, demoniacal forces of which he was only temporarily the vehicle. He said that looking at him was like looking at a bizarre face reflecting an unbalanced mind with a disturbing hidden power. In other words, a man possessed of the devil. Hitler was also obsessed with astrology. It is known that his master astrologer, a man named Ernst Kraft, cast his horoscope and thus they discovered where and when an attack would be most likely to succeed according to the influence of the cosmic forces. Naturally, every Nazi adventure was an absolute success. Nothing went wrong, at least not until an astrologer named Louis de Waal went to Winston Churchill and suggested fighting Hitler with his own weapon, astrology. Churchill agreed, and de Waal was made official astrologer to the British High Command. 
By casting Hitler's horoscope himself, he got the same information the Germans would base their moves upon, and so knew where and when Hitler would strike. In this way, the astrologer became a master cosmic spy, looking over the Fuhrer's shoulder while he laid his plans. What could be better than to eliminate the Nazis' master astrologer altogether? They turned up a letter written by the good Herrkraft, which contained certain passages which, taken out of context, seemed to be treasonable criticism of the Nazis, even of Hitler himself. So DeWald set off for America with this letter. He showed the seemingly incriminating parts to the American newspapers. Headlines across the country screamed the news that Hitler's chief astrologer had dared to criticize the regime. Two weeks later, the Nazis' great and invaluable seer was thrown into a concentration camp at Buchenwald. From then on, Hitler completely lost his magic touch. He blindly made his greatest blunder. Deliberately, of his own free will, he invaded the vastness of Russia. And like Napoleon before him, he never recovered. The devil-possessed Nazi leader also used his black magicians to harness the unseen powers of darkness, to jam the radar of Allied bombers when they flew over Germany to lead them astray. Realizing this, the RAF set up their own psychic warfare department, sending out preternatural power waves to battle the German psychic forces as the guns and planes battled on the material level and to lure the Luftwaffe raiders into traps where they were cut to pieces by the fighters, waiting to pounce on them with the certain knowledge that they would come. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, there is foul and foul despair, hover through the fog and filthy air. But that's enough for now of modern witches who ride to sabbats in automobiles instead of astride the traditional broomstick. Suffice it to know that magic is real, everywhere, unseen, unfathomable from the end of time to the beginning of time which are inseparable because they are the same unbroken a circle the magic circle itself the ancient and potent symbol of magic the perfect mystery without beginning and without end suffice it to know that witchcraft is real the old religion infinitely older than jehovah god of the christians Older even than the Tetragrammaton, the mystic four letters symbolizing the God of the Jews, whose name is too sacred to pronounce for fear of desecration, who has been called Adonai, my Lord, or Elohim, meaning God, since three centuries before Christ. Yes, witchcraft is alive and always has been, alive for thirty centuries before the first syllable of recorded time. Hecate, 
the pagan goddess of the moon, the earth, and the underworld, of hell, the dark goddess of magic, necromancy, and witchcraft, was first mentioned in literature, surviving literature, that is, by Hesiod, a Greek poet, who wrote the beginnings of the world and the birth of the gods. He wrote of Hecate eight centuries before the birth of Christ. And how many centuries old was she then? <laughs> he didn't say. We can only guess. The ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead is filled with magic instructions, charms and spells, which were written between 500 and 3,000 years B.C. The Old Testament is filled with witches and magic and prohibitions against them. And that one fatal sentence from the Book of Exodus, which was to be remembered and acted upon by the witch hunters for many centuries to come, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Without any doubt, the greatest necromancer, Thamurtargist, astrologer, alchemist, and wizard of all time, was Solomon, king of Israel, the archmagician. He became a legendary figure dominating the study and practice of magic for centuries to come, not only in the biblical lands, but throughout the world, in Ethiopia, Persia, India, China, and the length and breadth of Europe. It is written in ancient scrolls that Solomon drew his magic power from evil forces, having abandoned Almighty God. He worshipped Astoreth, or Asarte, goddess of love, fertility, and lust. In the book of the Kings, we read that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I wonder if you've noticed one very important thing, the inalienable connection between women and witchcraft. Hecate, the ancient deity of the craft, is not a god, but a goddess. The Malleus Maleficarum, or Hammer of the Witches, published in 1486, was the official guide of the Catholic Church for the persecution and extinction of witches. It states that all witchcraft springs from carnal desire, which in women is insatiable. And so to satisfy their lust, they consort even with demons. Woman by her nature is a creature of enchantment. By the fineness of her intuitions, the cunning of her wiles, she is always a witch. She, not man, is the mother of fancy, the mother of the gods. She possesses glimpses of a second sight. Her spirit has wings to soar into the infinite of longing and imagination. The paganism of ancient Greece, a bright and strong and vigorous religion, begins with a sibyl, a virgin, beautiful, brilliant in the full blaze of dawn, and ends with a sorceress. Thousands of years later, a hideous old crone on heaths and in forests, hunted like a wild beast, chased from street to street, reviled, buffeted, stoned, and burned at the stake. What an insult. What a profound and horrible injustice. The witch is the high priestess of the old faith, of the old religion, and the Christian priest, with his vows of chastity, realizes clearly where the danger lies. The old woman who heals with herbs is an enemy, a menacing rival. New punishments were devised for her special benefit, new torments invented. Witches are brought to trial en masse, condemned to death on the slightest pretext or none at all. 
Under the auspices of the Spanish Inquisition, as many as a hundred victims were burnt alive as witches in a single day, almost all of them women. The auto de fe, as this mass burning was called, became a macabre kind of carnival, with priests and princes of the church, dons and duchesses in magnificent robes, peasants in rags, jugglers, booths where people could buy all manners of souvenirs, relics, rosaries, holy images and food amid the screams and flames and stench of burning flesh. Imagine the horror of it. The bonfires, the pall of thick black smoke from all those burning bodies writhing in unspeakable agony, the gallons of hissing, spitting human fat melting away to a horrendous, sticky, sickening liquid pouring, boiling down the gutters as they broiled alive. The good people were drawn by the thousands, spellbound by the unspeakable charm of the fete, the overpowering, somber spectacle, and the profound effect of music. Yes, music. A macabre pageant, a tragic comedy of doom and death and agony, set to music and orchestrated screams in the holy name of the Mother Church. The chronicles of the Middle Ages, the accursed registers of the Inquisition, read like a testament of doom and despair. In their vapid sameness, their dismal sterility, their shocking, arid, unconscious savagery, Read a few pages and a cruel chill takes hold of your heart. Death, death, always death. You feel it everywhere. One word recurs continually like a bell of doom, of utter horror told and told again. The awful, lingering, living death. Always the same word, immune. The methods of the witch-hunters and inquisitors were simple. Some poor wretches accused of witchcraft, sometimes by a jealous neighbor or a peevish child. The victim is arrested, stripped naked, and searched for devil marks. Any birthmark or blemish of the skin is accepted as evidence that they have surely made a, a pact with Satan. If none is found, the poor witch is stuck with needles to find an insensitive spot further proof of witchcraft. She is then thrown into a dungeon while the inquisitors gleefully go to work inventing a long and detailed list of fantastic charges. Their imagination runs wild. The judge may include anything that titillates his lurid and perverse imagination. Lewd practices are invented, fornication with the devil, child sacrifice, feasts of rotting human flesh. When this gruesome accusation has been drawn up, the witch is dragged before the court and ordered to confess everything. Usually she refuses. She is then ordered, put to the torture, to persuade her to change her mind. Eventually, after the most savage, cruel, and barbaric torments, the tearing of her flesh with pincers, 
her body broken on the wheel, her fingernails ripped off, her feet thrust into a fire. Whatever horrors the twisted mind of the hangman could devise, she is ready to confess anything her tormentors demand of her. In her crazed delirium of pain and fear, she will often invent new crimes, new horrors of depravity to confess. And having confessed she is guilty, sometimes she is tortured again for her own good, to purify her soul before she is put to death. She may be beheaded, garroted, hanged, or immured, but usually she is burned alive at the stake. The tortures are unbelievably grotesque in their savage ingenuity. One continental favorite was the strapado. The victim's hands are tied behind her back. The rope is thrown over a pulley and she is hoisted up to the ceiling. Now heavy weights are attached to her feet, 50, 100, 200 pounds, until her arms are wrenched out of her sockets and she dangles screaming that she is ready to confess anything they want. In England, milder forms were used. The witch was usually stripped naked, bound with chains in some agonizing position, and left on a cold stone without food for as many days and nights as it took for her to come to her senses, which was usually a kind of delirious madness. One Scottish specialty was to make the prisoner wear a hair shirt steeped in vinegar. When it was removed, it pulled the skin off of the victim's body. The torture of the thumbscrew was simple in comparison. The victim's fingers were put in an iron vice. This was tightened by degrees until the bones cracked, the blood and marrow spurting out in great profusion. Uh, finally, there was the torment of the dreaded Spanish boots, severe and cruel, or wax, pointed iron boots like a giant thumb screw to fit the feet. It was tightened with screws until the feet were crushed by slow degrees, until they were a bloody pulp, useless forever. Perhaps all these ghastly tales frighten you just a little, do they? Perhaps you've had enough of witchcraft and magic already. Would you rather flee back to the safe, rational world of solid scientific facts, the world of concrete, of computers, of profit and loss, of smog and supermarkets? <laughs> How dull. I'm disappointed in you. Think of what you'll be missing in the other unfathomable world of the unknown, the magic regions of the mind, the invisible dominion of spirits, which is just as real and in the end much, much more important. Or do you feel the ineffable, inexorable pull of the unknown? Do you long to undertake the greatest adventure of all? among the invisible forces to learn the ancient secrets of the old religion, perhaps even to cast a few simple spells yourself, to invoke a spirit or two. Do you have the heart for it? Well, that's good. I'm glad. I thought you would. So now let's get down to work. 
We have much studying to do. There are many ancient mystic texts to guide us. First, you must know that the best time for magic is always at the dead of night, when the earth grows silent, cold, when vapors rise and the human heart beats slow, and we come a little closer to death. When the atmosphere is clear and empty and the spirits can move freely, for they say that wandering demons bold and joyful in the darkness of the night are terrified by cockcrow, and in their fear they fade away. As for the place of magic circles, when you wish to come in contact with the unseen forces, it should be chosen with melancholy, doleful, dark and lonely, in woods or deserted places, or among ruins of castles, abbeys, monasteries, abandoned mines, or forsaken houses, mountains, caves, swamps, the borders of lakes, or upon the seashore when the moon shines clear, or else in a lonely, unfrequented chamber hung with black and the floor covered with the same, with doors and windows closely shut and waxen candles lighted. But best of all are crossroads where four roads meet, for they have long been recognized for their special affinity to magic, beloved of spirits and demons, because for centuries it was always at the meeting of the ways that murderers and thieves were hanged to dangle there a feast for flies until the flesh fell from the bones as a warning to others who passed by. The Heptameron, a 13th century manual of magic, advises the magician thus, and let him be observed by no one, and let him consecrate this spot and exorcise it. And let him have in this spot either a table or a little altar covered with pure white linen facing the east, and on two sides two lighted candles of pure wax, burning continuously, where a long robe of white linen, closed in front and behind to cover you to your feet, girt with a girdle. On your head place a band or ribbon on which will be inscribed the name of the Tetragrammaton. Some authorities say the robes worn for magic should be black, others say red. But red, black, or white, it doesn't matter, provided they are loose and reach to the floor. Also, the magician must be naked under the robe with no undergarments whatsoever, and this robe must never be worn at any other time, being reserved exclusively for the rites of magic. The feet must always be bare, the head also, except that the ribbon or headband may be worn inscribed with such magic words and magic names as you may choose. Never attempt to communicate with the unseen forces unless you are suitably attired, for they may take offense and harm you. The only other way that magic rites may be performed is nude, a very common practice among witches and looked upon with great favor by sympathetic spirits and by Satan, so they say. But be careful, when you stand naked before the spirits of the night, you must have upon your person somewhere a talisman to protect you. This is of the greatest importance to your safety.
The implements of magic include all of the following. First, the magic wand or staff, the ancient symbol of the virile member of authority and power. This is by far the most potent and important implement of magic, common to wizards, sorcerers, warlocks, and witches, essential to control nature, the elements, the beings of darkness, and the disembodied forces of the outer world. The wand is used for tracing the circle in which the magician must enclose himself to call upon the spirits. In fact, it would be extremely hazardous and rash to attempt any form of necromantic conjuration without the power and protection of the enchanted wand. It must be of wild hazel, often called filbert, from a virgin tree which has not borne fruit or another wild nut tree, or of willow or birch, cut with a new knife which has never been used. The two great magic signs must be carved upon it, the pentacle or five-pointed star, and the magic hexagram, the six-pointed star, the seal of Solomon. Then you must incise the three mystic names, Alga, An, Tetragrammaton, and then the Maltese cross. On the other side, engrave the words Ego, Alpha, and Omega. When this is finished, you must take the wand to a wild place at midnight and plant it upright in the earth between two new wax candles burning in new candlesticks. Appropriately robed, or nude, you must stand and gaze upon the wand with all the concentrated force of your inner being until you feel the presence of the great powers. The force of nature will flow up out of the earth to join the force of the heavens flowing down from the ether to gather and unite in the wand. Then pronounce this invocation in a low, even voice with great conviction. In the ancient sacred names of Hecate, goddess of witches and sorcerers, who is Selene, the moon in heaven, Artemis, the huntress on earth, Persephone, queen of hell, in the name of Astaroth, goddess of lust and fertility, Asnos, Asnos, in the most holy and terrible names of Osiris, Isis, Ra, Ego, Alpha, Omega, Alga, An, Tetragrammaton, in the name of Lilith, the succuba, first bride of Adam, and mother of all the demons, I call the power of Adonai and all the great and terrible spirits upon this virgin wand of hazel that from the birth of the new day shall be potent in magic. Bagabi, Laka, Bashabi, Lamak, Kahi, Ashababi. Now take thirteen steps backwards and leave the place without looking back. You must then return at sunrise, and to complete and seal the consecration, say, Most pure angels, be guardians of this my instrument, for it shall be needed for many things. Having uttered this, turn the two candles upside down, crushing them to the earth to extinguish them. You must now take up the wand which contains all the power you shall require, and leave that place never to return there again, ever. You will also need the arthami, the magic knife used in the rituals and all kinds of magic. 
and then carving magic words, mystic names, signs, and cryptograms upon the wand and for other purposes. This must be new of the finest tempered steel with the handle of wood or bone. Then you must have a censer or incense burner and a charcoal burner. This must be any suitable vessel of earth or metal, large or small, and must stand upon three legs or on a tripod or any base of three, the magic number. Then you must have candles of pure virgin wax, candlesticks of mineral composition, china, clay, metal or glass, incense, perfumes, charcoal, brandy, sulfur, leaves of the laurel tree, which are also called bay leaves. All instruments, all objects to be handled by the witch or magician must be new, never before used for any purpose, or specially and freshly made at dead of night by the light of the moon in a desolate spot in utter solitude. Each time they are used anew, they must be cleansed with salted water and at other times kept wrapped in fresh white linen. Now you should also have some creature, a cat, a dog, a frog, or a toad, a rabbit, a bat, a goat, a snake, or a mouse that is your familiar. I cannot tell you where you will find this creature, but the spirits will send it to you when you are ready, and they will make you know that this is your familiar spirit. Keep and guard it well. You must choose the name of your familiar spirit. Such have been Gill, Holt, Wigan, Satham, Suck, and Sugar, Pluck, Catch, White, Griseal, Gidigat, or Vinegar Tom. The witch must also possess the magic bloodstone, also called the spotted heliotrope. It is found in India and Scotland and can readily be obtained from any merchant trafficking in gems and precious metals. Throughout the ages, many sorcerers and witches have found other stones efficacious in magic, among them the garnet, the ruby, the onyx, and the opal, and sometimes certain lustrous and enchanted pebbles which do not have a name and which the person who possessed them came upon by chance or were drawn and led to them by a force outside of themselves. The witch or magician must never part from this bloodstone, keeping it on his person, next to his skin, waking and sleeping always. Usually a tiny sack of linen or of animal or reptile skin is used to contain it, hung around the neck or loins of the witch. This sack must be inscribed with the witch's name and the pentacle written in the witch's own blood, which is obtained by pricking the finger with a needle. You must never part from this stone, for it is also a talisman, excepting that you may give it to another witch who gives you her bloodstone in exchange. But when this is done, the inscriptions must be done anew, each witch using her own blood to write the other's name. From then on, you are mystic sisters, and the magic of your bloodstones increase threefold. Peculiar to witches, as distinct from sorcerers and wizards, is the traditional cauldron which is owned by every witch. This is a round vessel with a narrow opening, the symbol of the womb. 
It must be strong and durable, able to withstand fire and freezing chill. The material must come from earth, the mother. It can be stoneware or fired clay, but certain metals are considered better, among them iron, brass, or bronze. When it is used to boil mixtures and concoctions of magic ingredients, it must be supported by a tripod, three stones, or any three-cornered base. And the fire must be of charcoal or dead sticks from natural trees gathered by the witch herself at dead of night. The best wood for the cauldron fire is found in deserted, gloomy places, graveyards, ruins, crossroads, and in olden times, little twigs to be found around the foot of a gibbet where a felon had been hanged, the noxious liquids from his putrefying corpse having dropped upon the earth, where, they say, no grass or sweet flowers, but only the most rank and poisonous herbs and weeds would grow. Now you have some knowledge of the basic paraphernalia and implements of magic, shall we proceed? Are you eager to learn the steps that must be taken to communicate with the spirits to bring the unseen forces to bear on your behalf? Perhaps to evoke an ancient god or one of the legions of greater and lesser demons who are everywhere? Seven million four hundred and five thousand nine hundred and twenty-six, according to the Talmud. I don't think you have to fear being put to the torture. I doubt that you'll have to face the appalling, unholy terror and horror of the impacha, walled up, sealed alive in a tomb, to await in utter, hopeless, abandoned terror the suffocating, lingering death of starvation and madness, clawing at the pitiless stone in unimaginable darkness. <laughs> You're so lucky. Aren't you glad? <laughs> but there, I, I don't mean to frighten you, but I must warn you, the evocation of a demon is not to be taken lightly. There are dangers if you are careless or frivolous. It's not so easy a business as some idle and curious amateurs might suppose. First, you must know that nothing can be done to evoke spirits without a circle. The mystic magic circle, symbol of eternity without beginning and without end. Anyone who enters into communication with demons must be enclosed in the magic circle under penalty of certain death. Then there should be the magical five-pointed star, the pentacle, which acts as a protection, and the hexagram, the six-pointed figure consisting of two interwoven triangles having the power to control demons. Now that you have your magic circle, you must consecrate it. Some medieval magicians again recommend this simple form. Stand outside the circle, wave the magic wand over it, and say in a great voice, Ban, ban, barrier that none can pass, barrier of the gods that none may break, barrier of heaven and earth that none can change, which no god can annul. I personally favor that particular dedication because it has such a nice ring to it, don't you think? Mm, and, uh, no demon could miss the point. Yes, that's my very personal favorite, but if you prefer something more mysterious and exotic, there are many efficacious formulae in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, ancient Egyptian, Assyrian, and Persian. Use the one that makes you feel most confident. That's the important thing. The one that kindles magic in your heart. 
For if you doubt yourself and tremble, the demons will know it and attack you. Perhaps you'd feel safer with a less ancient formula. Hmm? Something a little more up to date? Well, that's easy. I'll give you the procedure that one of the most pleasant present-day English witches recommends. <laughs> oh, she's a darling. <laughs> she tells us that first a triple circle must be drawn on the floor using the arfami, then it should be marked with salt or charcoal. Each circle must be six inches smaller than the one surrounding it. The outside circle is then divided into the points of the compass, north, south, east, and west. Starting at the east, you should write the Hebrew word Adja. Then in the west, the word Sabaoth. And in the north, Adabi. And in the south, Javeh. Next, draw the pentacle inside the circle. Place a brazier of burning charcoal at the eastern point of the smallest circle. Now draw a triangle outside the circle to the east. Place the altar, which can be a small table draped with white linen, in the center of the circle. On the altar, you will lay out the implements of magic as follows. A brass water sprinkler filled with pure water from a spring or brook in which you have dissolved salt. Bottled spring water being pure, well, it's acceptable for this. The salt must also be absolutely pure. Pure sodium chloride. Unadulterated with other substances, such as alumates, dextrose, and potassium iodides found in most commercially manufactured table salt. Pure rock salt is excellent and easily obtainable. Also salt extracted from seawater by evaporation. Best of all is salt evaporated from the tears and sweat of a woman, preferably the witch herself. Then there is the censer, the athami, a hazel wand, and a sword. Each tool must be ceremonially cleaned, sprinkled with the salted water, and wrapped in white linen. Now set lighted candles around the largest circle and upon the altar. The ritual commences. Various conjurations are offered to the spirits to keep the circle safe from evil. Next, you will throw incense on the brazier and speak certain words of power to summon the spirit. The spirit will appear in the triangle you have drawn outside the circle. Can't you just picture this cheerful, ruddy-faced little English lady <laughs> dressed in baggy homespun tweeds and good stout walking shoes, her grey streaked hair twisted up in an untidy bun, bustling about the village doing her shopping, having tea with a vicar, a white-haired old clergyman in a dog collar and gaiters, while the village mechanic changes the oil and adjusts the timing in her ancient jalopy, the putt-putting home along winding country lanes, to the isolated ivory-covered house where she'll gather a few sprigs of parsley and some mint and a little deadly nightshade from her herb garden, putting out a saucer of milk and a dish of fresh live tadpoles for her one-eyed tomcat, Beelzebub, hurrying with her own supper of cottage cheese, peas and carrots and chamomile tea, so as to be sure of being ready when two of her witch friends come over at midnight. As the church clock strikes twelve, 
They shed their tweeds, don their witches' robes, turn off the electricity at the main so as not to disturb the spirits, then disconnect the telephone, light the candles in what they call the black parlor, and busily start drawing their circles and triangles in preparation for a night to be spent conjuring spirits, working on getting rid of the wart on Mrs. Weatherby's nose, or perhaps even cursing the manager of the Northumberland and Newcastle Bank, who has threatened to foreclose the mortgage on Briarheath Manor, and force poor Sir Gerald to sell the old deer park to make way for some dreadful housing project for the workers at the Chittenden chemical plant. Of course, all witches are not old. Some are young and beautiful, voluptuous, seductive women, or undeveloped adolescent girls, even children. Reginald Scott, a member of Parliament born in 1538, wrote a book. Let me quote. Witches, he says, are commonly old, lame, blear-eyed, pale, foul, and full of wrinkles. They are doting, scolds, mad, devilish. <laughs> All this means is that Mr. Scott was a spiteful old man with no imagination, a timid, mediocre fool who didn't like witches. If he had taken the trouble to visit the Leipzig Museum of Fine Art before making this stupid prejudice statement... He would have seen a magnificent painting of a witch preparing a filter. She is naked, young, tall, slender, and beautiful, with long golden hair and small round breasts. There are plenty of cases of young and beautiful girls being burned for witchcraft. On the official hangman's list of a famous German witchcraft trial, Barbara Goebel, one of the victims was described as 19 and the fairest maid in Würzburg. Also on the same list were a wizard of 11, a schoolboy, and a witch of 15. A death list from France includes two sorceresses of 17. <laughs> Damnably pretty. Revenge, spite, and jealousy were often behind accusations of witchcraft. Dame Alice is rich... She must be a witch. Mistress Moland is pretty. Witch, witch. Oh, such a pity. But I'm getting off the subject. I'm sorry. But there are so many fascinating tales to tell you. Well, let's see now. Where were we? Oh, yes. Mm, let me see. Now, you have your implements. And you have your magic circle. Good. Shall we proceed? But remember that magic is not for the faint-hearted. You can't be too careful when dealing with demons. And you wouldn't want to spend eternity in the fires of hell now, would you? <laughs> so hot. You stand there in your robes, armed with your wand, your bloodstone, and all your implements of magic. But be sure you have no base metal on your person, only gold and silver to throw at the spirits if the need arises. The brazier is burning. Sprinkle a pinch of incense on it. Then a pinch of sulfur and a few drops of brandy. Good brandy, please. As the flames leap up, pronounce these words. 
I offer you, O Adonai, this purest incense as I offer this charcoal made of lightest wood. I offer it, O great and potent Adonai, Ilium, Ariel, and Jehovah, with all my soul and all my heart. Deign, O mighty Adonai, to accept it favorably. Now you can be sure you have the great almighty God, whatever his mystic name may be, firmly on your side. It is time to summon now the evil spirits. Have you scrupulously performed all that is required? Have you? Now, all right. Then begin to recite the following conjuration with confidence and assurance. I invoke and command thee, O cursed spirits, Bail, Bathim, Agares, Marbas, Pursan, Abigar, Amon, Botis, Valafar, Nuberus, Glasibolas. Come here to this place, instantaneer, appear immediately in human form, well shaped in body and soul, and comply with my commands without deception of whatever, whatsoever kind. Come then in visible form and speak pleasantly, so that I may understand thy words. Come in the name of Eod, Elioim, El, Elion Gibor, Vadath, Eladonai, Tzaboth. Elohim, Tzaboth, Shadi. If thou dost not come or disobey me in any way, I will curse thee and will cause thee to be consigned to the bottomless pit where thou wilt remain until the day of judgment. Come then, appear before this circle to obey me utterly. Come in the name of Adonai. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.